everyone, and welcome back to Let's Unpack That. Um, I hope you all enjoyed our Thanksgiving break. We sure did. I hope that we gave your ears a bit of a break from uh, Erica and Kirk's bickering. Um, but we are back with another episode. We're going to do something a little bit different. This is kind of a, a special edition episode, so it's a little bit longer. It's a little bit more comprehensive. It also has a little bit of the old version of Let's Unpack That, just kind of less structured, a little bit more freeform in our dialogue. And um, the reason why this episode is so long um, is because we're talking about something that is really going to be a significant challenge for the United States, for um, other countries uh, with you know dictator-esque leaders, specifically um, what it means for kind of the future of our parties and how we talk about our parties and how we talk about what our parties stand for. So um, in a sense, we're, we're unpacking fascism. It's an incredibly different I would say style of things that we've done before. Obviously, you know that none of us are political experts, but we are talking about the things that we see in a fascist country and how a lot of those things are kind of being replicated right now with the way that Trump is trying to steal the election, with the way that um, you know Mitch McConnell treats the Senate, um, the way that really democracy feels under attack um, in terms of. Um, attacking the media, attacking how people vote, attacking uh, just every kind of aspect of things that feel traditionally American, free speech, free thought, free to criticize, all those things. Um, so fascism, if, if you don't know, it's a way of organizing a society in which a government ruled by a dictator controls the lives of people and in which people are not allowed to disagree with the government. Um, it's that very harsh control. Um, it's a very harsh authority. Um, and I think we're all seeing that now. And um, it's motivating a lot of Republicans to vote, get involved in politics, stay involved in politics, this sort of strongman idea. Um, so it's an interesting conversation. And we have a special guest today, uh, micro-influencer, former Republican operative, current member of the Antifa movement, Charles McBride. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Christ. <laughs> I, I'm very grateful and happy to be here. I, I would also like to say that none of those things are true. So we will certainly get to know Charles as we record this episode. Um, but we also have back uh, the gay I used to bully in middle school, and he's still wearing Crocs to this day. Kirk Wilson, welcome back to the pod. I wasn't wearing Crocs then, but I am wearing Crocs now. <laughs> yeah. That is true. You bullied me so hard that now I wear Crocs. <laughs> Well, speaking of bullies, uh, she's the most hardworking, beautiful woman I know, despite having hooves for feet. Erica Ellis, welcome back to the podcast. I hate you so much. And nobody in the world is more pathetic than this straight white corporate sellout. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I say we all say something nice about Paul. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, super happy to have you guys all back. I think I'm going to implement this new thing where I just like do ridiculous introductions for you guys each week because it was really fun to write and laugh to myself uh, about 10 minutes before this. We're glad you enjoyed that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when That's you, okay. I, when you said Charles was a former Republican, I was seconds away from saying, oh, I could see that. And now I feel bad. <laughs> No, it's never 100% true. Like that, that is actually the only actual thing he said. <laughs> oh, there's one. 
Yeah, well, I wanted to obviously get to know Charles for a bit, you know, before we jump in. Um, it's always important, like, I think for us on the kind of let's unpack that fam. This is the politically engaged podcast run by a queer millennial and his friends, where we basically unpack our world and events that happen in our world through anxiety and depression. So I guess, you know, first, like, who are you? Where are you? What type of anxiety do you have, if any at all? Um, And, uh, you know, anything else you feel like people might want to know about you? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not actually sure what type of anxiety I have. I think it's just kind of generalized. Um, I did find out today that if you have anxiety, that's like a different set of psychological triggers than psychopathy. So it's actually impossible to like have crippling anxiety and be a psychopath at the same time, which is really encouraging because I've now been able to cancel out the fact that I'm a psychopath. <laughs> I, you know, that is actually very affirming for me. So. That's the thing. I mean, like we, we have to find something to look up like to make 2020 look up. And and I think this is it for me, but yeah, I am currently living at my wonderful, generous parents in South Carolina, like apparently most 25 year olds in 2020. And I am serving as the brand director for the FarmLink project, which is a food waste nonprofit. We repurpose surplus food and we rescue food that's going to waste and we send it to food banks in need. So that's my full-time job. And aside from that, I mostly just wallow around in existential angst. So you're fully remote then, like doing the brand management work right now? Weirdly enough, actually, the entire project is fully remote. There are very few people on the team that have actually met each other in real life. Like I've been working with people for six months that I've never met and they've become dear friends, but uh, I've never seen them. It's actually very close to this podcast. That, that it sounds like very fulfilling work, uh, sometimes probably more fulfilling than, than some of the work the rest of us do. Um, curious, like kind of how you got into that. And then also like, I don't know how you sort of got involved in politics too. Obviously there's a hugely important uh, or should be a hugely important it, uh, political issue is sustainability and food and farming and um, food waste. But, you know, is that kind of where it stems from or, or does it come from other parts of, of your life? In many ways, I'm actually a very apolitical person. Um, I, I, I'm a pragmatist when it comes to politics. And the easiest way to get to the goals that I um, believe in is where I'm going to end up falling politically. So I don't really think of myself as like terribly progressive or terribly liberal or terribly conservative or whatever. I'm just kind of the way I've always seen it is work with whoever gets you to the place where you want to be um, in terms of your values and your goals. So uh, I got in, I got involved in politics from a very early age. My um, my mom was very deeply involved in the Republican Party in South Carolina. And so from literally like age 10, age 12, I was being dragged to, you know, county uh, GOP events and that sort of thing. And being on congressional campaigns and um, gubernatorial campaigns and generally being, I was even, <laughs> I was in a, I was in a commercial for the <laughs> gubernatorial campaign as like a 10 year old uh, running out of the front of a schoolhouse, which was very ironic at the time because I was homeschooled all the way through uh, my childhood up till college. 
So I just remember the dissonance of being like a 13-year-old running out of a schoolhouse that I didn't go to so that we could install one or other Republican nominees in, in the in the state house. Um so I've had a I've had an interesting progression from there. I was kind of nominally Republican throughout high school, um, much more interested in kind of like civic leadership and spiritual leadership. I was involved in this kind of like Christian nonprofit um, where we talked about state government from a Christian perspective. And then I went to college and I kind of got over the whole thing. Uh, I ended up getting invited to serve on the Rubio campaign by some friends at college who were in student government with me. And honestly, at the time, I mean, I was kind of like very skeptical of the Republican Party, but I also wasn't like as far out of it as I am now. And so I was like, sure, why not? This will be a good experience. And I did that. And uh, I actually, I was in Greenville in 2015 um, before Trump even announced, and he came to what we call the first in the South. Um, it's not a primary. It's not even a event, really. It's just this kind of all of the Republicans come to Greenville, South Carolina and, and make a play for the nomination early on before any of them announce. And Trump showed up to this. Yeah, no, I saw the way that he moved the audience and it was shocking. And I remember turning to my friend who was also on the Rubio campaign. I said, that guy's going to be the next president. And he laughed at me because at that time, Trump wasn't even a contender for the nomination. So yeah, literally the next week I was like, I'm not going to do this. I, I quit the campaign. I went off to uh, studying abroad in the UK that summer. And when I came back, Trump was leading the pack for the Republican nomination. And then of course we know how that story went. Uh, so since then, it has been an, an interesting uh, progression towards, I wouldn't say liberaldom, uh, towards progressivism from my conservative roots, working in DC for three years for a network of nonprofits and seeing the way that uh, right-wing money works to serve right-wing interests. And frankly, just kind of being horrified at how that plays out and the type of connections that people are willing to sustain in those environments. Yeah, so basically when I lost my job back this summer, I decided to go all in on basically getting Lindsey Graham out of the Senate and, and getting Trump out of the White House. So to that end, I did some volunteering with the Biden-Harris campaign. And even though I'm at heart an Elizabeth Warren guy, um, and did some work with Jamie Harrison. Uh, obviously, Jamie Harrison didn't work out, but here we are on the other side of the Trump presidency. And that's a good feeling. But also, it's just the start of this thing. And we have we have no idea how long we're going to be saddled with this sort of um, neo-fascist movement that has been not created, but but resurrected by Trump and his acolytes. It's pretty wild. First off, that's just like an awesome story in general. I mean, so many things you said, I feel like resonate with the people who listen to this podcast. And even some of the people who are on this podcast, I've never been on the podcast with two people who were both homeschooled, you and Andrew. Yeah, I, I just, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but it's it's so rare to meet another weirdo in the wild like that. So that's nice. Hey, you know what? We come in all shapes and sizes. How, were you homeschooled all the way through? Yeah, pretty much all the way until senior year. Senior year, I just took uh, classes at a local community college. That's amazing. So wait, that, that brings another question to my mind because there's two types of homeschoolers. There's like the we are the 
the beatnik generation and we believe that like we need to raise our kids on a commune so they can become in touch with their spiritual selves and their past lives and then there's the like we think that the satanist marxists have infiltrated the public school system and that they're going to turn our kids into satanist marxists yeah that last one (laughs) (laughs) we were somewhere in the middle but they were definitely they were definitely both parts yeah so i want to hear about that that sounds interesting yeah, we should probably do a whole podcast one of these times about unpacking weird uh, homeschooled upbringing. I'm in, and I know that me and Erica and Kirk will just sit on the side and drag you both. I was just going to say, I can't wait to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be honest, I find it fascinating. And I'm I'm also like, I don't know, just it's it, I'm so curious, like whether it's like kind of homeschooling, how that influences political beliefs too. like, I mean, I certainly like I was not homeschooled, but, um, you know, Kirk and I went to the same elementary school together. And and certainly our experience was a very conservative Catholic um, private grade school. And, you know, Kirk was like one of the only few liberals who dressed up as Al Gore for Halloween. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, I was parading around pretending to be, you know, Sarah Palin's husband and like just kind of both of these things like just I, I find kind of fascinating of like knowing that all of us really with the exception of Kirk grew up in like a fairly conservative household, but for probably like very different reasons, whether it be religious through education, a combination of both, or just kind of like the, the, my parents fear of what I would learn if I went to a public school or like if I, you know, went to a a co-ed high school, you know, like I went to all boys private Catholic high school in center city, you know, just like so many, you know, interesting. Probably explains a lot, Paul. hundred (laughs) percent. Let me tell you, when you put a bunch of what, 14 to 18 year old boys in a room locked away when they're going through puberty, like, like, I think you literally create more gay men in that way. <laughs> like, I think you are fostering like this culture of queerness. Like, I don't know. Everybody was down to like, whatever. But Kirk, you went to an all boys school too. I don't want to drag mine, but I felt like it was like a very queer place, even though there were way more straight people than gay people. Yeah, I don't feel that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel quite the opposite. <laughs> You know, what's so funny. I am the oddball out because I went to a pretty liberal public school. Um, That being said, like when I say public school, I think my public school is the equivalent to like a nice private school in Philadelphia. And that's just, you know, the school system in San Diego. But like, I remember people coming out in seventh grade and like, we threw a party for this kid. (laughs) Like. It, it was definitely very different. Um, the only person I ever knew to be like outspokenly anti-gay is, and this is not like a pattern. Like I don't want to say people who do not who denounce homosexuality is, are closeted, but he was in fact closeted, um, and now he is as gay as they come. <laughs> Wait, Erica, I have a great thing to talk about in in tandem with that because I think that's a real thing, right? So you have this. Uh, Obviously, you have this stereotype, but I, I really find that looking to Eastern Europe is even funnier than looking at the United States because they just have like an even more complicated mm-hmm. history of things like 
anti-Semitism and homosexuality and that sort of stuff. And even we do in the United States. And just this week, um, there was there was a, a member of the Fidesz party, which is kind of the far right uh, Hungarian party that's under the grip of Viktor Orban, um, who's, you know, setting himself up as the dictator of Hungary. It's very unfortunate, very sad. Um, but anyway, he was the author of anti-gay legislation, which is very popular in Hungary. And he was arrested by Dutch police this week as part of a 40-man orgy. (laughs) Um, He was jumping out the window, wasn't he? He was jumping out the window. Crawling down a drain pipe with a tap of ecstasy in his backpack. This man was fucked three times because they went after him. They they broke it up because of COVID, but also because it was a gay orgy. And so he's there and he's doing drugs. And of course, Hungary is getting more and more fascist and more and more far right. And he he was like the poster child for all of that. Andrew, I'm going to say it was more than three times. (laughs) Well, (laughs) man, I I swear every Every person that I know personally who's just like vehemently anti, you know, quote unquote, the gay agenda or whatever, I've always had suspicions of like, mm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the vehemently being against is different than just like being against it. Do you know what I mean? Like people who yeah. are so obsessed yeah. with being against it. Um, again, not every single person who is, but I think it, it that's when you're kind of like, well, maybe that's you're, that's like Mike Pence. You're too obsessed. Yeah. yeah. I, I hate that. But still, you know, he might be. It seems like the most common story, but we have a lot to talk about. So, um, you know, for kind of this episode, what we're going to do, we're going to go through kind of some some headlines, but the headlines are going to be kind of geared around Donald Trump um, this week, um, specifically what's going on with his witness testimony, his fraud cases, this entire mess of people who are funding this fraud investigation. So we're going to jump through that. And then we're going to go a little bit deeper into the electoral system, just kind of some frustrations we have with the electoral college, as well as some recommended replacements for it. Um, And then after that, we'll close out with kind of some action steps for the the Georgia primary. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Um, So stay with us. So we are back. Um, we are here with Kirk, Erica, Andrew, and Charles, and we are going to jump into our headlines. So this is our segment where we pick one disturbing headline from this week's news, um, and then we all kind of weigh in. So there's they're all kind of related this week. They all kind of um, blend in this week. But Charles, I want to start with you, as you are first and new to the pod, of your headline, because I think that sets up some of the rest of our headlines as well. Yeah, so I mean, the, the one that jumped out at me this week, and there was a lot. There was, there's was a lot to jump out. But the one that jumped out at me this week is that since Election Day, Donald Trump has raised $170 million in terms of donations from his base to fight legal fees for, for, for a variety of different reasons. Um, his campaign or the, the PAC set up to defend him, um, various entities attached to him have raised frankly, more money than he was getting at the very tail end of the fundraising cycle for the election. It's like almost a hundred million more, right? Yeah. 
and, and the thing is that that what this tells me is is something that I'm, I'm I mean unfortunately I, I I assume that this is going to be the case, but I, I was really disappointed to see it come about, which is that Trumpism is not going anywhere, and that Trump's vice-like grip on the Republican Party is here to stay. And in fact, there will be no, uh, at least in the, in the foreseeable future, there will be no Republican Party that is divorced from Trump. The Lincoln Project failed. The Never Trumpers failed. Um, Mitt Romney failed. These, these people no longer have a place in their own party. It is entirely controlled by the personality cult of Donald Trump to the point where Bill Barr, who is supposed to be like the Evangelion, the, 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 the harbinger of owning the libs, the one who was going to be this sort of like ex machina that was going to rescue Trump from everything um, and, and, and turn all the Antifa people into, I don't know, send them to Guantanamo or whatever, <laughs> where he says one thing where he's not even dissing Trump. He's just saying, we haven't seen evidence of voter fraud. And now he's getting dragged in the right-wing media, dragged by Newsmax, dragged by the One American News Network. So far, not yet dragged by Tucker Carlson, but also you know, Fox News is recalibrating in their sort of post-Trump era. But what that tells me is that like this this whole idea of your like your Ann Applebaums, right, and your David Frenches, who thought that they could rescue the Republican Party from the grip of Donald Trump. It's just not happening. Like, like he has he's he's here to stay. His ideas are here to stay. His attitude is here to stay. And it, it it's not going anywhere. It, it it's going to be a fact of life that for the conceivable future, thirty to forty percent of the American electorate is going to be towing the line with this conspiracy madness. In which case, we, we kind of have to feel like a little pity for Hillary Clinton talking about how they were like a basket of deplorables and that there's just a certain percentage of the American electorate that's always going to vote this way. Like, I, it seems to me that 2020 is the confirmation of that rather than a repudiation of that. I, I could be wrong, but that's just my vibe is this isn't going anywhere. No, you know, what's funny, too, is like, you know, my mom still references the deplorable comment, like she still has her pin that she got at the Republican event that she went to after that comment was made. It's like a button. And I don't know that she wears it all that frequently, but she certainly still has it. It's certainly still on display. And it just like, even this year, after actually seeing who Trump is and her saying she doesn't like him and saying she thinks he's an idiot, she still doesn't feel that the Democratic Party can can welcome her because she was labeled as a deplorable by the the face of the the Democratic Party. But like, right, th- that's that's the reality, though, like the, that these people don't believe in news. They don't believe in fairness. They don't believe in the election results like like. This is fucking terrifying. It's truly terrifying. Like that's why, like I sent you guys that clip in our in our podcast group chat, like a couple um, uh, days ago, or maybe that was even this morning. This morning, I don't I don't know. Know. It was this morning, Paul. It was this morning, and it was just it was like 
uh, I can't believe that this is where we are, that this is a tweet that's pinned on Donald Trump's thing where he's screaming about so much fraud. We'll never get the truth. Any of that. Um, and Andrew, I know you, you have a lot of feelings on that and, and you watch the full 46 minute speech around that stuff that really confirms what Charles said is that Trumpism is not going away. So, you know, I'm curious about your reaction. I know that's kind of part of your headline too. Yeah, I, I did watch that earlier today. Well, I listened to it. Um, and, and first off, so, um, I don't know if I've really talked about it on the podcast, but, uh, my day job is a video producer. So one of the things that really stood out to me immediately about that speech, quote unquote, he gave was that it was heavily edited and they shot it from two camera angles and they were cutting between, they actually did a really poor job of it. Um, <laughs> to, to be honest with you, you, you could really tell that there was these cuts. In the beginning, he held up a printout of some charts and he went to put it down and it, they cut it too early. And when they went back to the wide shot, you could really tell that it was heavily edited there. So you don't know, like it was 46 minutes, but you don't know, like, you know, was he getting breaks? Like, were they coaching him? Because he was actually very succinct during the thing. He was not very much like Trump normally is. Um, so it felt very produced, like they were, they were really trying to project something there. But anyway, I was writing and writing and writing down the things he was saying. And eventually I just stopped because you can't just pick out one juicy nugget and say, like, this is the thing I want to talk about because everything was a juicy nugget. Like literally everything was absolutely bad shit. And for me, that it all boiled down to the fact that every single conspiracy theory, every single accusation of fraud that has been made over the last month and even before that, everything that he had been saying for the last year about how the elections would be fraudulent and the elections would be stolen because he basically set all this up to happen um, with all his rhetoric over the last year that every single thing that ha- that they have said has been debunked has been thrown out of court there's no evidence that they're presenting for it and anything that they do present is so flimsy that it's easily knocked over with the you know just a little bit of fact checking they haven't abandoned any of those threads and he took every single one of them and condensed it all into this 46 minute speech And that is what is so mind blowing to me is it wasn't even about like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it sticks. It doesn't matter if any of it is true or real or not. He just has to say all these things and the people who support him will support him regardless. They don't care. I feel like a lot of them know deep down that it probably is bullshit, but they don't care because Ultimately, they're getting what they think they want out of him. So it really doesn't matter if any of it's true or not. All they want is the chaos he is creating to get the things that they wanted, which is white nationalism, whether they want to admit it or not. And they don't want, quote unquote, socialism. And they don't want taxes and all the other stuff that they they think is going to be bad for them. It's insane. That was a that was a great way of putting that, Andrew. And I think like what you're dancing around is something that, that Paul and I have been talking about over the last couple of months, which is that w- when you're talking about a movement that defies logical explanation and 
actually bypasses the, the thinking, rational part of our brain and heads straight to the kind of lizard brain that is entirely based on emotion and sensation. I mean, okay, we're 28 minutes into the podcast, so I guess I can bring out the F word right now. It, it, it is a fascistic impulse. It is, it is bypassing the rational thinking centers of the brain and going straight for the emotion. And, and this is actually why it is, it's academically precise to identify the MAGA movement as a fascist movement. And this is one of the factors when you talk to, to a Trump supporter, they will bring up lots of different um, facts and factoids and different statistics and stuff. And, and it doesn't matter if you can debunk them or not. That, that is all a mirage for, for an underlying emotional sense that they get, that this is our guy. This is the guy that has our corner. And at the end of the day, when the chips are down, it does not matter what he has done or what he represents. The fact that he is on my side comes before any sort of rational discourse about his behavior or his track record. I think that that is, is spot on. And, and, and that segues perfectly into, into my headline. I, I, I like kind of the direction where we're taking this, like, um, and, and Kirk, I know you'll have a reaction to, to my headline because it's exactly what you shared on social media today, but, um, it was covered, you know, I'll just kind of cite the, the independent, but basically the, the, the Giuliani and Jenna Ellis campaign who I have, talked at length um, on Instagram about Jenna Ellis and about how she compares um, homosexuality to bestiality, um, that if we legalize gay marriage, then the next step is is animals marrying each other. She did this in 2015. So, you know, 2016, 2017, after gay marriage was, was legalized. But so, uh, you know, I've talked about her a lot. We've obviously laughed about Rudy a lot on this podcast even too. Um, but specifically, these two brought their star witness of uh, Melissa Carone today. Um, and I'll just quote. I'll just quote the 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 article before I play the uh, the, the clip. Um, but so. Um, the independent Ms. Carone, an IT contractor who worked for Dominion Voting Systems in Detroit on Election Day and has since filed unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud in Michigan, claimed to have seen thousands of examples of alleged voter fraud. However, her story has already been discredited by a Michigan judge who said in an affidavit she filed was simply not credible last month. But she was still invited to speak alongside the Trump legal team on Wednesday and at the hearing where she attacked a Republican representative, Steve Johnson uh, from Michigan. Um, she attacked him as he attempted to ask a straightforward question about her specific allegations of voter fraud. And I don't want to play the whole two minute clip, but I highly recommend you all watch it. So just give me a second while I pull it up. The poll book is completely off, completely off. That I'd say that poll book is off by over a hundred thousand. That poll book. Why don't you look at the registered voters on there? How many registered voters are on there? Did you do you even know the answer to that? No, I guess it's, I'm trying to get to the bottom zero. of this here. Zero. There's zero. So my question then is if the yes, how many wait what about what about how what, what about the turnout rate 120 percent so like 120 percent so 
it's at that point in the in the testimony that actually uh, Rudy Giuliani reaches over and taps her to tell her to basically shut the fuck up. Um, that was, I believe, shortly after he farted, and that was also recorded and shared on Twitter <laughs> today as well. So, like, these are these people who are these followers. They, they she's, I've worked for Dominion. I, I was an IT contractor there. She probably worked there for like three months, you know, and she had like this entire thing. So, you know, Kirk, I, I know you sort of had a reaction to that, but I feel like that depicts the people that Charles just described of like. It's not about the truth. It's truly about just believing that the election was fake. It doesn't matter if there's proof or not. Right. That was that was actually my headline, too. I don't think it was independent. It was in the post. But I didn't know, actually, until I read this, that she was already debunked from in Michigan prior to her, them bringing her today or whatever day that was yesterday, um, which I think is wild and what did Giuliani expect he was going to get out of her bringing her knowing this whole situation anyway? Um, yeah, I just think, I mean, I think it's insane. I think the woman was insane. And I think I, I texted you guys today when we were texting about this. Um, you know, it's, and I think Andrew, you said it, it's not even just about, it is about Trumpism, but it's also just about, she, she knows she's wrong. She doesn't care. She wants the 15 minutes or whatever it's going to be. Um, to get out of this is really what she wants. Um, and I think she is probably falling under the Trump camp, obviously, but I, I think she knows she's wrong, but doesn't care. I think that's a lot of people at this rate. It's been what a month of this. Um, yeah, I don't think, yeah. I think if you keep believing it, it's, it's not really believing it. You're just a lot like it's this, um, willful ignorance. Yeah. It's more than willful, willful ignorance. I think at this point, it's impossible to estimate the amount of damage that has been done by a man who can command 40% of the American electorate and convince them that their democratic institutions and their electoral processes are fundamentally invalid. I think we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of that for years to come. Talking about anxiety, Jesus, it's, it's true. Um, you know, Erica, I, I, I know, you know, like you've obviously had your fair share of, of Instagram rants about this too, oh about God. forehead posts, forehead, <laughs> sorry for the people who are not from Philadelphia. Farhead. Um, farhead. Uh, <laughs> oh, 120%. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that woman is if you were to ask me what a vodka soda would sound like as a person, it would 100% be that woman. <laughs> yeah. He pretty did that because I have known to drink a vodka soda. <laughs> she looks like one too. It does look like one. I will say, Paul, my headline kind of really segues into what you guys are saying. Um, and it's around Gabriel Sterling, who is an election official in the state of Georgia. And he, I don't know if you actually watched the press conference. I was really moved by it because he was almost begging Trump to tell his supporters to back off. Um, and if you don't know, they're sending these, they're sending the um, counters death threats. They are um, posing threats of physical harm, emotional harm at every corner um, and it's to the point where counting votes shouldn't be a dangerous job. Like you shouldn't be 
as at as much risk as a 18 year old in Afghanistan. But that's what it is because of some of these supporters. And it's it's just it hurts my soul that we Trump isn't going away because his people aren't going away. Like to be so passionate that you're willing to murder people that you do not know whose lives that you are not connected to, who are quite, for the most part, these are just people who wanted to be civically engaged or wanted to use, you know, retired and wanted a little bit of extra money. So the fact that all of this is happening surrounding a recount in Georgia for a state that, like, we know we have Pennsylvania. There's no case for Trump in Pennsylvania, no matter what he does. And we know there's no case in Georgia, right? But they have to know that winning Georgia won't give them anything. Like, they still lost the election, but they're so willing to spew so much hate and violence and just evil into the world for this man that I I sit back and think, how can you look at this? And then you look at Trump and you see them wearing his gear, you know, toting his signs, all of this and separate the two because they're not separated. One was born of the other. Um, So I just, I personally don't think that we will ever see a world without Trumpism because Trumpism, like all the other isms, is just going to evolve. And I think it's going to grow and it's just going to seep its roots throughout everybody. And we're all going to be affected by Trumpism for the rest of our lives. And this is one fugly fat man who (laughs) quite literally has, will change this country for generations. It's horrifying. Like, I, I, I took an, a lift today for the first time in nine months because I had to return my leased car and Jack doesn't drive. So I needed to find a way back. And I was like, all right, I got to call a lift. I'm going to double up my mask. I'm not going to touch anything. Going to open the windows, like just terrified. Like I did not want to risk myself at all. And I was like, hopefully I have one of those drivers who I've seen with like the plastic wrap or like the, the plastic shield up, but no, like I get in the car, the guy has the Patriot channel or whatever it was called listening to Sean Hannity. And he is wearing a make America great again, hat that is dusty as fuck. Like it looked black. And I, that's why I didn't realize it as first. Like it looked like it was, it has been so dirty. It was like black. Um, but, and it had like a pin in it that showed that he was like a veteran. And I said, Hey, do you mind if I like open the window, just kind of immediately realizing like the situation I was in and he goes, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, and so like I opened the window and he's like, I can't hear anything by the way, because like, you know, when I was fighting in the Afghan wars, like all the IUDs were blowing up and now I can't hear out of this ear. So open as many windows as you want. I'm like, Oh wow. Thank you for your service. Like, I don't know what to say, you know, like, like this is, he's immediately volunteering this. And then we, we go a little bit further into the drive and he says, Oh, where do you live? And I said, Phoenixville. He said, Oh, I bought my first home there and I sold it. I sold it for double the price that I bought it. I was like, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. The neighborhood's growing really quickly. And he goes, yeah, but I had to pay for all my father's medical bills. And then my mom kicked me out of the house. And I'm just like immediately getting like plagued by this thing. I cannot help but point out the irony that you voted for a person who wants to 
you know, defund healthcare and abolish healthcare and has no legitimate plan other than to, um, has actually never put forward a plan that we have seen um, and has promised it for four years. Uh, yet, you know, you're complaining about your healthcare bills. I found that irony, but I did not, of course, say that. And I just thought like this, this is a guy who's like out here trying to like make money and make money via tips. And like, it, he's, he's immediately putting on things that are like particularly divisive on the radio, wearing that hat. Like it's just this type of thing that I'm like, I'm not going to say don't do it. I don't want you to, to censor yourself, but I'm like, this is a brand for these people. This is an idea that it's a personality. It's a, it's a, it's a way of life for them. And Trump is the sort of like surrogate. I don't know what, I don't know what word I I mean to use there, but it, 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 it's fucking terrifying. Like from these, that woman who was in the testimony today, who screamed about what all of the, the Chinese people who look the same. So they are, they are committing voter fraud. She said, like, she said this out loud, like under oath. Like I just, I have no idea who these people are and how we can't possibly associate the majority of Republicans with them because I know that their media doesn't necessarily see it, but they have easy access to this type of information like this. If you are one of the quote unquote good Republicans, you would not align with people like this. Like, I don't know. It just it's it's attacking, you know, me and, and his mask is falling down his face. And I'm like, motherfucker, I just like can't <laughs> get out of this. Like, I just like I can't escape this like Trumpism anywhere in my life, like whether it be through family, through a stranger or just like where we live. And I'm like. It, it does feel, even though we won the election, that it could very easily get worse. I want to push back on that a little bit, Paul, because I asked someone, like, I, I'm, I'm from South Carolina, you know, so for the people around me, like, you are emblematic of the coastal liberal, you know, you're the coastal elite. Right. You know, and, and, and I think it's, I think it's perhaps uh, unwise for us to dismiss that. It's an important and relevant idea. So I live two doors down from a guy who is a member of the Three Percenters, which if you're unfamiliar, the Three Percenters, along with the Oath Keepers, uh, is one of the larger militia groups in the the Southeast. And also a veteran, um, also had damage because of an IUD during his, his service. And I think that um, in the mind of people like your driver, in the way that he is exactly what you anticipate seeing in terms of associating him with the Trump brand, the Trump identity, right? So he associates you with the liberal coastal elite brand. And uh, as much as that might be not necessarily founded on anything, I think it's important that we realize there are deep cultural differences that are at the heart of these discussions. Um, there's, a, there's a great book I read earlier this year called Prius or Pickup. And for the life of me, I can't remember who it's by. And it's basically talking about how the differences between left and right now are, are more about psychology rather than policy. We think of, of people as the other, not because they believe in multinational institutions, and the rule of law, or what have you, but because, oh, a liberal is that person who bikes to their university job every day and gets a triple shot 
you know, latte at Starbucks. And then the liberals think of the conservatives as, oh, it's the guy who drives my Uber and the guy who, you know, drives a pickup truck and has a, a MAGA flag flying out the back. And it becomes this sort of war of identity where we associate these people not with the policy proposals that they, they adhere to, but the cultural identity that they take on. And to me, that's, that's, that's at the heart of what's driving us apart, is your inability to relate to that Uber driver and his inability to relate to you. Yeah, I guess for me, I feel that if there's a segment of Republicans, those are not the ones I feel I can even attempt to relate to. Like, I am very much in the belief that if, like, the people who just voted Republican because they always vote Republican, the people like my parents, if they truly dug into some of these beliefs, I feel like they might join our side a little bit. And maybe that guy would say the same thing about me, you know? But to me, I can't view that person despite their growing in popularity and importance as somebody who I should even try to relate to because every aspect of the way that I like run my life, even just me asking polite questions about him and like, like thanking him for his service and like, Oh, like that's where you live. Oh, cool. Like I live there too. And you know, like it just like none of, none of that even feels like we could ever be on the same page or have any type of dialogue. Cause like, I feel that that man is is somewhat representative of people who have hurt me for my whole life. And I fe- that's why I feel like my place in this sort of movement to try to help people become more progressive or be people who are more liberal is like, I grew up around Republicans. Maybe I can talk to some moderate Republicans and kind of shift them more to the left. Like maybe that's my niche. Maybe that's my audience. And maybe I missed your point in my response. But like, I don't know how to even talk to those people because I don't feel like they even want me around. <laughs> but maybe he feels the same. And I think that, but that's kind of your point, Charles, right? Like Paul's thinking that that person or that group or doesn't want him around, but then they're also, we're assuming that they don't want him around. And that's, that's one of the issues we're having. We're just, it's just this idea of, I don't want a, tr- a hardcore Trump supporter in my house or around me here, or I'm uncomfortable around them. But then sometimes we can't really pinpoint, like you can pinpoint why I can pinpoint why, but it might not, they might not identify as that. There might be a different reason as to why they do support him. And I mean, I don't, I, I, and I've been saying that you, you three know this, that I, I mean, I think I've said a million times on here saying I'm, I know in the heat of the election, I was like, I'm done with people in my life who just don't understand at this point that they can't make a clear decision that this man is, is this. And now stepping back a month from the election, it's like, well, there has to be conversations. And if there's not conversations and it can't just be with moderate Republicans. Right. But it's easier to say that, but I get what you're saying, Charles. I think that, I think that's a perfect, we all kind of do it. Right. We associate so much with the idea that he's even just wearing that hat in the first place. Right. Which I think is weird. Like, I think it's weird. Like, it's a brand. It became a brand. Like, that's a whole other conversation. But that hat means, like, a thousand different things in one second. And we write it off. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not it's not necessarily invalid that we do write it off. Right. Because 
we can, we can form an form an accurate picture of what that would mean for somebody who's willing to attach it to themselves to that. But I, I will say, as someone raised in South Carolina who spent three years in D.C., you know, the heart of liberal dumb on earth, and then returned to South Carolina, when I see that, it, it my my primary reaction is not indifference or hatred. It is it is merely pity. It is realizing that in, in many cases, there are certainly exceptions, but in many cases, these are people who are clinging to this because they lack community and they lack identity and they lack connection with their neighbors, with their country, with the needs of, uh, of, of people who, who don't look like them. And they are often desperately lonely and looking for something to cling to and identify with. And and I know that, you know, Joe Biden has been absolutely purloined by by the left for this language of healing and coming together and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Because I think there's a significant wing of perhaps the, the Bernie Warren left who says there is no common ground to be had here. But I mean, I'm I'm a very progressive person who's been living in South Carolina for a year now, um, and I can tell you there is common ground to be had. And I, I think that's like it, to, to me, it's it's not an option because the alternative to discovering that means the failure of the American experiment. It it means secession. It means California and the Pacific Northwest splitting off into to, to doing their thing and, and the Northeast doing their own thing and giving up on this uh, idea of a common American destiny. And to me, that's unacceptable because I come from the, the place where three blocks from where I was born, the South Carolina Declaration of Secession was signed that started the Civil War. And the last thing that I ever want to happen is for that to become a reality again. And so there is no cost in my mind that's too great to bear to reconnect with these lost brothers and sisters that we have. And I, I do see them as that. I, they are, yes, they are misguided. Yes, they engage in their worst um, instincts of misogynistic racism and whatsoever, you know, all all the labels that we can attach to them. But yeah, I don't, I don't know to, to give up on making that connection in my mind means giving up on America and the American experiment. See, it's, it's interesting because I, I think for me, I've, and I will almost always sit in that camp of, I, I don't hate, anyone for voting for Trump. I actually don't even think I hate Donald Trump um, because for me, like hatred is just one of those things that expends too much energy and I'm constantly tired and anxiety riddled and just frustrated. But it's also hard when there's like, for me, it's different because when I see that you're okay with what Trump is doing, my big red flag is that 
you don't feel passionate about being anti-racist. And I can't just say, let's come together when we've had 400 years of us being separated. Um, And, you know, when people complain about the coastal elite and all these big blue cities, you also have to recognize that if you are college educated and you want to pursue arts or you want to pursue certain industries, that does not happen in Bugaloosa, Mississippi. That's in your New York, your LA, your Chicago, your Houston, Texas. Um, And so I, I really do feel like sometimes there is two different Americas because you have this America that feels a certain way because of fear, and we need to accept that as fear. Um, And then you have the America that really has hope, and that means that they could have hope for, um, you know, a future that's that's framed within the Republican mindset, and they can have hope for a future that's framed with a more progressive mindset. And they can also, we can have fear of, the guy down the street with the MAGA hat who claims to love this country and loves his guns. And I'm thinking, well, if he loves his country and he loves his guns, that means that he probably hates someone like me and he has the tools to get rid of someone like me. Um, And then on the flip side, they see me and they see the crime that my skin color can bring. And they can, they see the riffraff that comes in with these certain types of people. Um, I, the thing that the issue that I keep coming to is we can't unite because we're so riddled with fear. We fear for ourselves. We feel we fear for our families. We fear for our communities. So how do you come together when you don't you think you're walking into a room full of snakes and it's just an empty room with like a teddy bear in a corner? And that to me is how I feel about this country. But I I truly believe that if we want to get to where, to this unity and this coming together and understanding, you have to eliminate fear. But how do you eliminate something that is not only woven into the fabric of this country, it is primal because our tiny little primal brains tell us that that person looks different than me. That means that we are fighting for resources. They are not a part of our tribe. They are a threat to my livelihood. Um, I think the issue with America is we never learned to come to terms with that. As a matter of fact, if we, we only got to where we are off the backs of not coming to terms with that. Um, I personally would not be shocked if, I'm looking up at everyone from hell, just where I'll probably be. (laughs) There's there's no longer a United States of America because the way that things are trending, the gap just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling. And the fact that Joe Biden saying that he wants to close that gap and bring people together is causing division within the Democratic Party, I think is very telling of what we have to look forward to. And I know I'm a huge pessimist, but I just, I haven't seen enough that proves to me that my children that I don't want who are black are going to have the same, are going to be able to walk into a white suburb alone at night and feel completely safe. Andrew, what about you? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What about the straight white man? 
I know. <laughs> you know, I I think the big problem in this country is the dichotomy with everything that we do. And I because my perspective is entirely American, I haven't been outside of this country that much. I don't know if this is an American problem or primarily a human problem, but mostly an American problem. But everything we do turns in, into these binaries. Everything we do is always is black and white. It's, it's A or B. We always split things into these two opposing groups in this country, it seems, no matter what the issue is. Um, there's no room for nuance. There's no room for, for middle ground. So before we started recording, I was getting to know Charles a little bit. We were talking back and forth. We were talking about like bread tube, like video essay, um, far left YouTube people. Um, and I was saying that I kind of agreed with a lot of the things they were saying, but sort of disagreed with the way they presented it. It, you know, their, their ideals without any kind of compromise or nuance. And I kind of likened that to the way a lot of people on the far right do the same thing. Um, and I feel that, and this is probably a very straight white male perspective to say that I, I feel that across the political spectrum and across the spectrum of different beliefs that whenever you have extremes on an issue, that's where we polarize ourselves and we don't allow any compromise or any coming together because it is that tribalism, which is ironic given the foundations of this <laughs> whole <laughs> entire country, this, <laughs> this tribalism that we, we always put ourselves into where we feel that there's these this finite amount of resources and the other person winning, the other tribe winning is me losing by necessity. Right. So it, it's not so much that we necessarily, I feel that people care as deeply about some of the values that they say they care so deeply about so much as it is about the other person losing we mm -hmm. want to see the other person lose yeah. and we would rather also lose at the same time than then the other person win and we also win no andrew like you're you're so absolutely right in fact there's actually like statistics to back this up right so they've done studies and when there is government policy that overwhelmingly benefits white people, if it disproportionately benefits black people and white people find that out, they will not support it. And that is like, that is statistically been a factor for the, for the last 50 to 60 years is that when you have social welfare policies, whether it be Medicare or Medicaid, uh, you know, Obamacare, that sort of thing, if there's any chance that it might disproportionately affect African-Americans who are 13% of the population, even even though it overwhelmingly benefits white Americans, white people won't vote for it. it and it goes, it goes right back to what you said, which is this, this tribal identity of I would rather suffer than see this other person succeed. I feel like that permeates literally everything we do down to the most mundane things. Like you can't be a person that feels indifferently about Game of Thrones and the final season of it, Game of Thrones. You either have to be all in and say it was the best thing you ever saw or it was the worst thing you ever saw and you hate it. And 
that's like it with everything we do we we do that and with something like game of thrones it's like kind of funny to joke about and it's like eh, whatever but when you extrapolate that out to these extremely important issues that's where it becomes so dangerous because you what do you what do you do in that that case it's like literally we're having this constant case of road rage where we're willing to crash our own car just to spite the other person because you thought they cut you off. Yeah. But, and, and I think the left does this as well. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's just, yeah. it's just the right. I, I think we're seeing the emergence of a left identity over the past four years in the way that we haven't before. First of all, I wanted to say, Erica, your response to my statements, they were just, incredibly eloquent and it speaks to an experience that i cannot even begin to relate to you know as a, as a straight white male i'm literally at the top of this hierarchy and, and as you describe these sorts of things it's, it's impossible for me to even fathom what you must be experiencing on a day-to-day basis and when you say things about, you know, somebody who, who really, really loves their country and really loves their guns. I mean, I, I'm one of your few holdout liberals who like, I'm, I'm very weirdly pro-gun. <laughs> and, you know, I very much loved my country. In fact, I think actually Donald Trump made me love my country more because I realized exactly what I do not want it to be. You know, a lot of leftists, if you go far enough left, they're also very pro-gun for, for, for Marxist reasons that I won't go into. For me, it's just kind of growing up in the South and seeing the Second Second Amendment as a part of a kind of American identity. But yeah, I, I think like even even that tension speaks to this increasing difficulty of trying to come to grips with the fact that we're a polyglot nation, which is what. That's exactly what Adolf Hitler thought was going to destroy us and and, 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 and and prevent us from triumphing in Europe was the fact that we were this mongrel nation, you know, that was unable to band together over the essential things. But but he was wrong. We did. We we defeated fascism. We banded together and we created a global network of liberal democracies that were insured by the arsenal of democracy, which was the United States, um, for the better part of the, the 20th century. So I think there, there is somewhere, and I question this every day, but I really do think that somewhere there is this essential American identity that if recovered can help solve these problems. I was talking to my neighbor and her and I, I haven't seen her in years and her and I go on our like three mile walks every day. And we literally talk about everything under the sun. And um, one of the things that we talked about was I thought I, she asked me, what was the, when was the last time that you felt patriotic and you were just like, I will literally kick through the door of any threat to this country. And I said, it was September 11th. And I remember like, crying for our soldiers. I remember like looking at the American flag and feeling so emotional and just devastated by the tragedy. And it's funny because we're going through a tragedy that's so much worse, but we have a president who's telling us this is not a tragedy. 
And I, I truly think that COVID under a different administration would have been the thing. That would have been the thing that said, I don't care if you have the most money, the most access, if you're black, if you're white, if you're gay, straight, anything in between, you can still catch this. But we are stuck with a leader who's telling us that this isn't real. And so if you believe in COVID, you are now a liberal. And if you wear a mask, you are now a sheep to the liberal media. And so I, you know, not to say that I want anything bad to ever happen to this country, but I think the only thing that unites us is a common enemy and a common enemy that we believe in. But then you look at September 11th and you think about all of the terror and hatred um, that many people, just brown people in general, whether they were Middle Eastern or they were just Indian or um, even Hispanic, people just couldn't tell. I I think we always need an enemy. And right now our enemy is each other. Um, And I hope that we do get to this point of at least just being proud of our country and wanting the best for our country and having the best of our for our country looking a similar way because it's never going to be completely the same. Um, but <laughs> I just, I think the only way that we can really come together as a people is if we come together against something that we don't like. Like, you know, the coworker that like, you didn't really like each other at first, but then you found out you hated the same person. And now like, all you do is talk about how much you can't stand Barbara and HR. Um, I, I feel it's like- literally that's that's literally how this podcast started. <laughs> <laughs> the person was Donald Trump, and the people were the four people here. <laughs> well, like Erica is tapping into something very, very critical here, and she's she's the first person to mention anything close to this, which is that literally Americans do not come together without a common enemy. Mm-hmm. That is just a like a truth in the words of Jane Austen. It's a truth universally acknowledged. And I, I think the biggest problem now is the same problem that Rome had. After you defeat all of the common enemies, where do you turn except yourself? And, and the Roman civil wars come as a direct result of the conquest of Carthage and the elimination of any sort of external threat, which is the situation that we find ourselves in. And at this point, like we have to admit terrorism was kind of a, it was like a false gambit. It, like, like Erica said, you know, we, we turned that rage onto a significant Muslim minority, or not even necessarily Muslim minorities, just brown people in general, became the scapegoat for our rage and our pain. And I think when you see some of the rhetoric surrounding the coronavirus and how it comes from China, and Chinese Communist Party is, is, is the most morally bereft organization on the face of the planet. And, and I don't think that there's very many people that, that, that debate that. They're, they're absolutely the antithesis of everything an American should believe. And, and really, they present an opportunity for America to rediscover what it is that made us band together against the Nazis and against the Soviet Union. But if we don't do that properly, and if we make that about race, rather than than policy and the fact that, that the Chinese are currently holding up a million to two million Uyghurs in concentration camps in their uh, northeastern provinces, 
if that's not what it's about, then yeah, we are lost. And isn't it wild? Like I might've missed this while I was pouring a glass of whiskey, but like Erica, you mentioned like it's, we've always been trained. This country was created with a battle in mind of, of, of a, a common enemy in mind. It was, it was right. Like we got here and we were like, who are these native people? And then like, we started like, like, creating a country and then it was like these people are taxing us and we can't be represented in their government and then it's like just over the years there's always been kind of this battle of america fighting someone else when really like we we were united but only when we had that enemy and it's 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 kind of terrifying um and i i, I think about more recent examples like you guys were just saying with covid and, and and you know with uh the the black lives matter protests although there was obviously a ton of divisiveness around that it felt like for a moment even for a couple weeks there was real unity in a lot of people believing that what happened to george floyd should not have happened and then all of a sudden it slowly starts to change. And, and and then we go back to being, well, you're this way, you're that way. And I want us so badly to be able to figure out how to speak a little bit more of the same language. And, you know, I know we have talked about that on this podcast before, but how do we get people to read the news that we read? How do we learn the news that they, that they read? Like, how do we, how do we put ourselves in that mind so much more. And and could these protests this summer have been more effective if we had been able to socialize with people and sit with people and talk to them about the importance of protests, talk to them about the importance of the election, because that would have been a human connection, a human conversation. Um, and it would have been different than just the online battles that we saw. You know, we were, especially as white people, you know, we were, we were told the message that we received were start having tough conversations, you know, this is on you. And so it's, okay, ugh, how do I do that with my mother over a phone call? I don't know where to begin. And then the movement starts to lose steam. And then all of a sudden the right-wing media arm is, is only covering the violence. And then in many cases you have other people ignoring the violence entirely, which I don't think is, is a hundred percent helpful either. I think there's somewhat of an in-between, you know, although I would certainly skew far away from the in-between that is only covering the, the rioting and looting. But even, even today it's still in Thanksgiving, I'm getting memes about rioting and looting. Yeah. Like from <laughs> people I care about very deeply in my life of, you know, I, I don't even know, I don't know where to begin the conversations. And each time I do, when I go into it with an attitude that is, and not what about, you know, race, politics, injustice, like even something like queer marriage, I start off with great intentions. I move like really far. I feel like they're listening. And then all of a sudden it comes back to this point of where it's like, it just explodes. And it's like an argument or it's just this like, we can't see eye to eye. And I feel, you know, I, I like at this point, I, I feel like compared to a lot of the people that comment on my Instagram and tell me I'm, I'm not doing enough. Like, I feel like a moderate. I feel like a moderate compared to a lot of people, uh, you know, and I, I don't know where to even start with some of this stuff. Cause if we're going to address fascism and we're, you know, 
going to address people who, who feel like they have been ignored by our country for forever. And now we're also trying to address people who feel like they've been ignored by our country for the last 50, 60 years because people that look different than them are, are, you know, like more prominent than they once were. Like, how do we address this? How do we talk about this? And that's like a whole thing we're all going to try to work on. You know, I know we're not going to solve that on this podcast, but it's just, it's like the thing that continues to nag me is how will anything ever get better if we can't talk? How will anything ever get better if we can't not fight? Cause we've always been trained to fight the other it's in our DNA. Um, as well as a, a lot of other good things I think about America. I just personally, I found it very hard to see a lot of good things right now in America. And even saying something as simple as that, acknowledging that America has flaws is divisive. <laughs> and it's, it, I, I don't know where to, where to begin. It's such a shame because, and I think the thing that pains me so much is I, I had the same experience as Erica, where one of the most vivid memories of my childhood is getting a call from my father on September 11th, 2001. I could hear the pain in his voice him saying, turn the TV on, and we turned the TV on, and minutes later, the plane crashed into the second tower, and we watched it live. I remember that, and and that's what pains me about everything that came after that moment, because that was like, in a way, that was the start of like the second half of my life, where I suddenly realized that the world is a dangerous place. You know, growing up in the 90s, that was a charmed existence. Like my mother didn't care. Like we would like wander off in the neighborhood for hours on end and, you know, go play Nintendo with the neighbor's kids and no one cared. And everything changed after that moment. And from then on out. And that's what pains me is like everybody here in this country, you know, I, I think Charles brought up this point. Like we are so much more alike than we are different. Like in the end, like we all kind of want the same things and we're all Americans, but we we put ourselves into these these boxes, you know, even with the, the Black Lives Matter protests and the defund the police protests, like, you know, we almost see the police as something else. Mm -hmm. They're still citizens. They're still Americans. They should see us as that, too. And we should see them as that, too. And then you see these robo cop looking cops walking down the street, rubber bulleting people on their their front porches like that is everything America isn't. That's insanity to me. And everybody on the right should fight that because that's literally everything against what the right stands for. You know, the personal liberty to stand on your own property and that is what really bothers me is like everything just gets bifurcated into these two groups and people jump between these groups depending on what moment they're in and who they're talking to. And how do you how do you come together from that? I want to push back a little bit on the idea that, you know, cops shooting people on their, their front porch with rubber bullets is anti-American because like. It's not. <laughs> well, it's anti-American values. It's anti-stated American values. We go to a lot of countries and do that every day. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, policing in America much more often resembles Barney Fife than it does Andy Griffith. And I, I think if we admit that to ourselves, that's part of what the, the Black Lives Matter protests you know, were about. We have to deal with the fact that we are not this sort of 
perpetually progressive, enlightened nation that just goes from one degree of progressivism to another. I mean, Adolf Hitler literally modeled um, the pogroms in Germany off of the Jim Crow laws in the United States. We have an incredibly troubled history with race in this country. And I think that's a lot of that came to bear this June and, and, and that, that hit as we were, it was during COVID, it was very awkward. We all had a lot of stuff going on and anxiety was high and tensions were high. But yeah, part of the problem is that we have to deal with the fact that um, the things that we thought were all American aren't, aren't necessarily all American. I actually, I just wrapped up this book by Sarah Churchwell, which is really excellent. It was called Hold America. And it was about essentially the, the ongoing competition between the idea of the American dream and America first over the past 100 years and how those ideas have like come into conflict with each other. And that was something that keep, kept sort of coming up was the fact that the American dream is this kind of theoretical thing that's never really been imagined, but it's always been that way. And it's always been a call to make us be better. It's, 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 it's always been this kind of charge to, to embrace social democracy and to, to come from all the different walks of life that we come to and, and, and really, I don't know, get beyond bigotry. And, and, and get beyond class warfare and embrace this identity that's always flawed and always incomplete and has to be reinvented in every generation, but it's nevertheless valid of this sort of common American identity. And that stands in distinct contrast to the idea of America first, which goes back to even before Woodrow Wilson, which is disengaging from the world stage and circling the wagons around around racial identity and cultural identity and economic status. I don't know where I was really going with that. That's literally half of this pod is. Yeah, that's what this podcast is. <laughs> but no, it, it is interesting because, Andrew, you brought up September 11th. And I don't know, I'm obviously young and sprightly and, you know, lively here. Yes, Actually, Andrew and I are. Andrew Kirk and I are older than the two of you. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm the grandpa of the podcast. <laughs> but it's funny because Charles, you and I were we kind of barely made it when it came to consciously remember September remembering September 11th. Um, in the sense that, like, I was in in California is a little bit different, but I was in first grade, and I remember it, and it was a little different for me too because I was in a different time zone, so. I yeah. remember my oh, sister we'll Jessica. Yeah. So, and this is like, this story always gives me goosebumps. My sister Jessica walks in to my parents' room and she says, mom, dad, something's wrong. Has not seen the news at all. Has not turned on a TV. And they turn on and they say, they kind of like push it off and they turn on the news and they call me in to bring me into the room and I, I'm watching this happen. And ironically enough, my Girl Scout troop, Troop 8682, was supposed to raise the flag that day. Um, 
and I like had laid out my Browning uniform and everything and this happens and all I, it, it took me so long to process and all I could remember was the fear and the sadness and thinking, oh my God, like, like what happens to us next? But there's this whole generation to them, September 11th is like Pearl Harbor where it's just a point in history that other people remember and they don't. Um, and, and I bring that up because I always, I'm always curious to think, how do they come together? Because like, I, I love Gen Z. Gen Z on TikTok is my favorite thing. They screw Trump left and right. And I love it. I, I share your unqualified endorsement of Gen Z. By and large, except for like the 16-year-olds dancing on TikTok, doing booty dances, I endorse Gen Z's wokeness. Yeah. I think they knew where it came from. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes Guys, from... Same, but they don't endorse us as millennials. Like, no, they, they trash hate us. us. No, but you yeah. know what? I, I will love say... Us, love us. <laughs> Our parents don't. Will you? Like, <laughs> I, We have so to true. love each other, which is amazing because we don't know how to love. <laughs> <laughs> Because we grew up in a post-9-11 America. We have no idea how to love. But it's so funny. We we should have a Gen Zer on the podcast. I was just going to say, I would love to. We do need a youth representative. Bring in the youth. So I coach volleyball. And one of the girls that I coach, she is so active at the age of 16. And arguably, like, she can't do anything civically for this country because she's under the age of 18, but the amount of like passion and effort that's going into what she's doing, that does give me hope. But also I see some, I think Gen Z is very easily manipulated, right? Because to your point, why are they so active? Mm -hmm. Do you think Trump had like 2016 had somewhat to do with, to that with them? Because I mean, if you're, I don't know how far down Gen Z goes, but if four years ago to a 18 year old, they were 14, like 14 and 18 is wildly different. Yeah. So like it could, they could have been like, what, like maybe they blame us for that happening. <laughs> I don't know. Well, so I don't know. Youth, youth participation increased by 2%. So I don't know how uh, engaged they are, but at least it increased. I yeah. think they're just more visible because yes. of, they're so technologically savvy. Yeah. Maybe I'm not the best example, but like we didn't get our first computer until I was five years old. Um, And I remember like when that computer arrived. Did you have a computer room, Andrew? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was like, like, you know, we didn't even have the Internet until the 2000s. Whereas my youngest sister was born after September 11th. I am 12 years older than my sister. And she has never not known having high speed Internet and electronic devices all over the place, Netflix and everything. So just by the nature of how they grew up, they seem to be way more visible. Yeah. Now, based on like my sister and her friends, I feel like my sisters may be more politically engaged in the wrong direction, but that's another podcast than her friends. But they're just like, they're all on all these social media platforms. Like all I have is Instagram. That's all my old ass brain can handle. (laughs) Andrew, you sound literally 600 years old. I am a boomer. I am (laughs) such a boomer. You brought up something very important, which is the woke Gen Z conservative influencer. 
which also goes into your question about the difference between a 14 and an 18 year old, which apparently Rudy Giuliani does not understand. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings me into the tea that I was going to spill. Yes. About Rudy Giuliani. I'm all in. Here we go. Here we go. Take a sip. Take a sip. Take a sip. Wait, I got to check. Hold on. Hold on. Erica, drink your rosé. Drink your tall pour. She's gone. (laughs) Rudy Giuliani. A man well known for his affection (laughs) towards the fairer sex. Anyway, I'm reading a New York Times article this week. I just open the app every morning and get my daily hit of like cortisol stress of you know what's going on in the world and i hear something about rudy giuliani's spokesperson denies something or other and it says spokesperson christine allen and i'm like that sounds really familiar so i'm like looking around and i like google on the internet and i'm like oh my goodness i know this person no no so i go to my instagram and I like Google it in and it's like this notification where it says like, follow back, like follow this person back, mm-hmm. Christine out. Mm. And then I'm like, how do I know this person? They go to my Facebook. So sure enough, when I was like a young nubile sprite working on the Marco Rubio campaign, <laughs> I met this girl who was apparently like deeply involved in Republican party politics at you know age whatever something in the teens and we connected over facebook then and there's a message in in my facebook messages uh where she says hello charles are are you a trump supporter uh, it, uh there are some events i'd like to, to bring you to um and she said i saw your post i don't even know what post this is but my response was that was an april fool's post i am by no means a trump supporter and I was thinking this girl was probably age back then, right? I mean, I was probably like an 18 or 19-year-old. Uh, no, no, she was significantly younger than me. I-, I thought when I read that Christine Allen was Rudy Giuliani's spokesperson that she must have been 22 or 23. She's 20 years old. <gasps> Rudy Giuliani's spokesperson is 20 years old. No. <laughs> so when I, when I add that up with what I have seen from... Uh, Borat's subsequent movie film <laughs> I just I, I don't know what to do and plus she's, she's she's very much plugged in with the like Turning Point USA Griftus yeah. I also know uh, weirdly I remember one experience with Charlie Kirk in a bar that I really uh, liked I have to ask you is his face really that small in person? <laughs> I was about like Two bottles of champagne that were paid for by Robert Mercer and Thomas Peterfee into that whole affair. I was at Trump Tower, I think it was 2017, 2018, uh, with my roommate. And we got a text from my friend who said, hey, this guy is like hitting on me. Can you guys come please intervene? And we're like, sure. You know, whatever. Like, we're like a little buzzed off of, you know, mow it or whatever. I don't of course. know. Mow it. No way. They serve in Trump Tower, which is egregious. And so we like head over to the bar and like, you know, we come to my friend and I look over and the guy who's, you know, talking to her happens to be Charlie Kirk. 
<laughs> I can't. <laughs> wow. And, and, and then there's this interaction between me and Charlie where I'm like slightly buzzed, right? And he's talking about, you know, the preservation of of, of the, the white race <laughs> into the future. And my, my favorite topic. <laughs> right. And weirdly enough, the fact that like the weird Hungarian right wing billionaire that was super funding whatever the project that I was involved with at the time was also super funding his project, which gave me immense concern and, and sent me on the path towards my disillusionment with that endeavor. Um, but it was weird. It was it, like the weirdest thing was that, like I put I, I thrust myself in between you know, individual one and, and, and Charlie Kirk. And suddenly Charlie Kirk was very interested in talking to me about Thomas Peterfee, who was this Hungarian billionaire. <laughs> it was just a strange experience. That's an entire follow-up episode. <laughs> Before this, like our wild right-wing story was Kirk hanging out with Kimberly Guilfoyle. <sighs> that tops that. Yes. I never top things, so you just did something that helped. Oh. <laughs> Just, oh, just kidding, boys. <laughs> Wait, but hold on. I did that Google is, what? What? That what? is also white supremacy. Kirk <laughs> admitting that he's a bottom. On <laughs> I did Google wow. Christian Allen, and the first thing that comes up is in Politico, and it, the headline is "The Mystery of Rudy Giuliani's Spokeswoman." Meet Christian Allen, the 20-year-old college student who speaks for Trump's personal lawyer. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. That I thought that, Charles, you were going to say you dated her. <laughs> no, no, no. She's a wonderful girl. I mean, like, and I'm not necessarily ruling that out in the future. Like, people change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Slide. Christian, if you're listening, please slide into the DMs. <laughs> It says she has a thin resume and an inflated Instagram bi- biography. Those are like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Like those words seem like so, like, I don't know, like demeaning. Like I think like thin, like I just think of a woman's body. I'm like, how, how do you use two words to describe her like career achievements? And I'm thinking like, shapely. Oh. <laughs> No, like I remember her as being her as being like a, a a decently capable daughter of a Republican kind of person. Like I, I actually more remember her mom was just like super into the Trump thing when I when I met her, and 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 Christiane was or I, I mean I'm not sure even how to pronounce her name. Yeah, I mean listen, you're 20 years old. Like if your career starts with being. Rudy Giuliani's spokesperson, then you can only go up from there. She's obviously brilliant and well-funded, so. Well, no, I mean, she's just, she's just like a recipient of a certain class of, of privilege that happens to coincide with Rudy Giuliani's taste in spokespeople. Dear God. Taste in spokespeople. This is a pattern in the Trump White House. Uh, Trump had Kaylee McKinney, mm-hmm. who... You know, she's she's not that old. Um, she's a little older, but it, it kind of fits that pattern of they have the it, I you see this across the right with like what's that that Kent State gun girl who runs around oh. and like 
does those stupid fucking like gotcha interview videos on college campuses like you see this across the board on the right where they they love these young pretty white girls that like they tote their guns around and they wear like clothing that's just revealing enough but like still modest enough it doesn't piss off the boomers they fucking love that dude you're so right that queen tommy laren yeah tommy Tommy, Tommy laren there you go kirk is famously blocked by tommy laren on twitter (laughs) how did you manage that instagram I forget. I like drunkenly trolled all her posts saying she seems to chill with the face tune. And she didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was nothing to do with politics. <laughs> Just regular old American bullying. Just trying to help her out. I feel like these people aren't that capable or, you know, maybe collectively if you put them all together. But Nazism doesn't um, doesn't begin with Nuremberg rallies and say Kyle salutes and, and incredibly eloquent sort of international footage being peddled around. No, no, it begins with something entirely different. And that's something we're, we're afraid to talk about, which is the fact that the paleoconservative alt-right movement, as identified by Trump, is, academically speaking, fascist in every sense of the word. Yeah, I agree. Um, I feel like if, if Trump had gotten a second term, we would have gotten much more dangerously close to it. And I feel like we are still too dangerously close to it. But I, the one thing I think is going to save us from going down that path, or I hope will save us from going down that path is the incompetence of the people in Trump's orbit and Trump himself. You say that, you say that, but the Nazi administration and the Nazi high command was one of the most incompetent entities in world history. That's so funny because that's not the conventional wisdom, is it? I obviously have not studied it, but I was always told that they were so organized and so good at what they did. Because that's exactly what they want you to think, right? But when you look at the biography of something like Hermann Goering, it reads exactly like Rudy Giuliani. I mean, the guy was an absolute chuckle fuck. He had no idea what was going on. He was head of the Luftwaffe, which is the German Air Force. And the the innovations that he brought to the Luftwaffe were were so absolutely debilitating that they lost themselves the Battle of Britain. And they completely derailed their ability to accomplish strategic objectives like they were able to do in Czechoslovakia and in Poland and in France. Um in 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 this the ironic thing about the Nazis, which is, you know, I mean, I hate to do this thing where we compare the Nazis to Trump, but it's 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 also true in Trump world. Whereas, the very things that made the Nazis come to power were the things that ended up bringing them low. Hermann Goering was much more into the idea of being Hermann Goering than he was into the Luftwaffe of being an effective military force. Because of that. They absolutely bungled the Battle of Britain. And and you take somebody like Adolf Hitler and you have the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with the Soviet Union. And Stalin is not anticipating that Hitler is going to break the pact, right? Um, But because Hitler is who he is, he has to break the pact because he believes that the Slavs are subhuman, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so he, he, he invades the Soviet Union to the surprise of Stalin, um, but not to the surprise of anybody else. Because at the end of the day, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, I don't know what that sort of familiar heartland expression, I don't know how that goes. But, but, but it's just what Nazis do. Like, they thought they were the Aryan race, and so they thought that they were going to renege on their biggest ally in the war and throw them under the bus. And that didn't work out so well. But the very things that brought them into power ended up spelling their demise. Oh, that gave me so much hope. I can see that now, and I hope that we're on the path to a much more accelerated timeline for the Trump administration than it was for the Nazi party. And I, I will say you can really see it in the Trump administration where there's so much around pride that and I think my mom has said it a million times. She said Trump's pride is going to be his downfall because he's going to hit a point where he has to face the music and he will cut off every single arm, leg, anything to save himself. And so, like, if someone said it's either you or your daughter, Ivanka, he would still choose himself. And we all know how much he weirdly loves Ivanka. <laughs> and I, I, In a I, sexual I, way. Uh, yeah. Isn't that the only type of love that exists? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> looks <laughs> at my therapist. <laughs> but... Um, but no, I, I truly think that if it came down to it, Trump would not be afraid to throw his own supporters under the bus. Whereas, no, absolutely not. Like, like, look it's at just Barr. too easy. Yeah, look at Steve Bannon, the guy who gave Trump everything. Ugh. And here he is, sloppy Steve. He's going to prison. You know, you got Bill Barr, who's supposed to be the Evangelion, and now he's like out the pasture. You're totally right, Erica. This is an, it's a movement that eats itself. When I got let go from my job by my like weirdly reactionary former bosses who were ostensibly directing a nonpartisan nonprofit, um, I, I almost wrote a letter to the chief of staff, which was that. Listen, you're, you're like you're going to be the last one who gets thrown under the bus, but but don't delude yourself into thinking that you aren't going to be thrown under the bus, because at the end of the day, survival is the main goal. And we've seen that over and over and over again in the Trump administration, where anybody not even speaks against him, but just like corrects him or or brings some logic to a situation, they get cast out. Very, very, very quickly. Everybody from Dr. Fauci, like nationally re renowned physician at this point, to Sean Spicer, Dancing with yeah. the Stars star. Like just the entire idea. Like, like there's there's literally no loyalty whatsoever yeah. within Fucking that world. That, that chucklehead Scaramucci. Yeah. People that Trump chose personally he then casts out because they said something they looked in the wrong direction yeah. or you know they farted wrong except for maybe you know giuliani who <laughs> you know Farts on doesn't stage. seem to affect him <laughs> i think erica's point though is interesting 
about not only the people in his circle, but his his followers and his base and his the Americans. He doesn't care about all Americans. He, right? he says he cares about those Americans. He's made that very clear. But I think one it's hard, that's probably the hardest part of the people that he says he cares about to find him not caring about them. But he kind of does. He it, The one place where you can see it is that phone call with Bob Woodward in January or whenever that was saying how horrible and serious this disease is and virus is. And then we know he knows how serious it is, serious it is, but he's out here having rallies and he's out here having thousands of his supporters. He's telling them not to wear a mask. He's telling them not to do this. He's congregating with them together. He doesn't care about them. He's not, he's not touching them. He's not getting super close to them. Um, so I think that's a prime example that they don't see that because they don't think it's real, um, that he doesn't care. So I think you're right, Erica, at the end of the day, he will turn his back on them too, when ultimately he has to, or, and there's, there'll be some left, I'm sure, but he, he won't. Not. Care not I mean, the idea that. that the idea that, you know, Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, all of these people are just terribly weak incompetent politicians as Republicans now. I mean, in part, I agree, um, but I agree as a Democrat. I don't agree as a, as, a, as a Trump supporter. 2012, everybody, the entire party was behind Romney. And now he is the evil one, John McCain. You know, all these people who were like stars of the Republican Party for so long um, are now tarnished in their mind. Because that's like that power of even groupthink that just, I don't know if that's the right word here, but but groupthink that just kind of changes the way that, that they approach politics now moving forward. And look at Ted Cruz, who spoke against Trump, and Trump went in on him for weeks on end, and all of his supporters got behind that, and everybody hated Ted Cruz, and Ted Cruz got down on his knees and he choked that Trump cock down, and now all the right loves Ted Cruz. It's absurd. I mean, Trump will come out tomorrow saying, I love Barack Obama, and those 74 million people would love Barack Obama. Like, it's crazy. Yep. I know. Yep. So, wait, this is a really important point. Like, as of, like, six hours ago, Trump considered canceling student debt <laughs> as a part of his, like, final executive order. I've seen all of my like, like reactionary right wing friends on Facebook being like, "This is so unfair," and whatever. So, like, this is the whole point about the whole fascist thing is that it's actually incredibly typical that the figurehead of a fascist movement is incredibly ideologically inconsistent. Yeah, like right. that, that is absolutely when you look. at when you look at Franco, when you look at Mussolini, when you look at Salazar, when you look at Hitler, that's absolutely what they are. They're all over the map in terms of ideology. And it, it's literally just what's expedient at the time. Canceling student debt is one of the most popular ideas in America right now. And so Trump's like, yeah, I'm all See, about let's that. Let's do it. Yeah. Isn't that so wild? And, and now he's all, he's all like, Congress has to pass a stimulus package. Like, like the Senate really needs to get relief to Americans. And I'm like, dude, he's doing it because it's what everybody needs. But yeah. where was that actual effort when we were saying that COVID was like the flu? 
and we're going on two hours and 12 minutes of recording and going all the way back to when we first started recording where we were saying that there really isn't an ideology here to his supporters and his supporters don't really care if the fraud is true or it isn't true. They just care about having a leader that's going to do the things that they think they want. It's the same thing with the leader right. and, and and Kirk, you, you brought up that point where, you know, Trump doesn't care about any American. doesn't matter if they're left or right. He has lived in an entirely different world his entire life to the point where he started with a quote unquote small loan from his father, which was millions and millions of dollars. You know, that is how is he, he has had his whole supposed real estate empire. And we can get into all kinds of conspiracy theories about whether or not, you know, the mob used him. Are we talking about one conspiracy theory really sure. quick? Give me Rob. Interesting. So in 1927. Okay. Whoa. We are going 100 years back with this conspiracy. <laughs> I'm in. Because this is a ghost. R slash conspiracy. I was like, it's a, it's a ghost story now. <laughs> 1927. I was just a young guy. <laughs> I Andrew certainly was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was still in diapers. There was a America First rally in Queens, New York, in which several hundred Ku Klux Klan members Kirk, your show up. <laughs> um, this, is, this is second plan, so they have been revitalized by the showing of, of uh, Birth of a Nation by Woodrow Wilson in the White House. Seven people are arrested by the NYPD at this rally, among whom six are confirmed Klan members, and the seventh is Fred Trump. <gasps> what? Oh, I've heard this. I've heard this. Who happens to be the father of a certain ignominious Donald J. Trump. Is this really a conspiracy, or is this can this be confirmed? I don't know. Oh, that, uh, oh yeah, it's confirmed that he was there. Kirk, you run in those circles, so... I, I think the um, I can never see the defense hood, of it is is that he was just incidentally there and he wasn't there on purpose. So the conspiracy is was right. he actually there as a, an active participant or did, as people say, did right. he just sort of like happen to be there at the time that this thing happened? Sure. I always tend to accidentally walk into clan rallies. <laughs> listen, listen, Erica, Erica. There are fine people on both sides. Listen, both, yeah, sides. both sides. So, so this is people. my whole point: is is that like he has lived in this whole other world his entire life that is not our world. Going back to eating the rich, and he doesn't care about his base. He will. He doesn't care. He will sacrifice them to the China virus. To get what he wants, which is reelected, and we have seen this throughout his history. To like what you were the, the point you were making, Charles, that there's no ideological purity and everything is all over the map. His family and he himself have identified as Democrats at certain points in time. It is whatever has allowed him to get by with his businesses and his taxes, whatever he has had to say to stay relevant within the social discourse he has done. 
It's my my mom says the same thing about, you know, like I'm aware of his past stance on on abortion and how he was okay with it. I believe he's learned. I'm like, if you think that man hasn't paid for hundreds of abortions for him and his children, like I just like it like again, I say that without any proof, but it's like it's like the idea that this person is reformed after years and years and four years as a president showing us who they are is, is wild. But it's, it, it's, I think it goes back to our point that we were talking about. We have to figure out how to communicate beyond this. You know, I think that like, it's, it's a helpful dialogue for us to think about as we move forward in this podcast with helping people talk to the Republicans in their life, however moderate or radical they may be, you know, so that we can find ways to do that. Now, there are some people that, yeah, we might just say, can't do that this week. Not gonna, I can't even go there. I can't even touch that. I can't have that conversation. But like at some point, especially us as white people and the majority of white people obviously vote for Republicans. So we need to figure that out. That's a really good point, Paul, that I actually wanted to bring up today that it just triggered something. So it's great that you said that. Um, I had a conversation this weekend, this past weekend on FaceTime for about like two or three hours with a friend that I haven't seen in a while, a very long time actually. And she's currently living in California. She is from Boston and she worked on the Warren campaign and she's worked on campaigns since we were like 18. So like almost a, a decade of doing so. And she, um, I, she's kind of burnt out and done, done with it, I think. But, um, she it was me her and another friend and her she she's black our other friend is black and i i'm white i don't know if anyone knows and we've had conversations with erica about this too but it was just really interesting hearing from her from another friend saying like um she was like you know i i love everything everyone's doing i love what the white people are doing in my life since this summer i love what you're doing kirk i think it's like i've noticed you know an uptick in everything you've done. I've always would say you were an ally. You've always done great. You've always been a great friend and it's always been above being a friend. Um, but when I've never really thought about this, I guess when I couldn't really set it, but she's like, you enter rooms that I don't enter. And that's on a level of because of privilege or just your family's white. My family's not white. When you go to Christmas, it's all white people. I'm not saying they're all not liberal or they're all not conservative or they're all not racist or they're all are racist, but they're, they're not all thinking the same way, but you're able to have these conversations, people that I'll never step foot in the room with to have. So I think it's a really important thing for white people to understand is as hard as it is for us to have these conversations. And I think since this summer, people have been so like scared of their, their white privilege or this white fragility and all that kind of stuff. And I think more people are more comfortable than others. I think we're pretty comfortable with it, obviously, considering we have a podcast talking a lot about that. But um, the reason to do it is because those people can't and, and can't find them. And it's also like if you're going to be the one other in the room, you're not going to start a conversation about that when there's, you know, if you're at work and it's, predominantly all white people and you're the only black person like why would you start that conversation it's not uncomfortable for erica, you er, erica will yeah. erica might. <laughs> but but i think it's somebody to think about it that way like i am the only I'm, I'm entering a room that my friends who i'm trying to help and advocate for honestly might never ever walk into so i want to have these conversations and change minds for them because they might not be able to get in these rooms which i think is i never really thought of it that way 
works. Like, honestly, everything that you comes across seems sincere. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from, but it seems to kind of like delegitimize the fact that whenever like people of color have wanted something in this country, they've just like fucking balled out for it. It's not about like us few white people in power granting them the privilege of access that they've had that it's just them like no, grabbing sure. by the balls and doing it. I, yes i i mean that's a fact obviously i, I agree with that i mean that's a proven this, this summer is a proven or still happening is a proven um is proof of that obviously i'm just thinking when it comes to from a conversation perspective with people that you're not gonna um that I come in contact white people, I guess is what I'm saying. We're trying to convince people of or change people's minds. I think we have opportunities that maybe a person who is, isn't white doesn't have, but I do. I mean, when it comes to change and, and in terms of the system or whatever, that always usually does come from, you know, the group that is oppressed doing that. Um, yeah. And I was thinking Kirk, like, I feel like I, I relate to you in that sense of like, kind of like the, the racism light, stuff like the people who are like they don't realize like they don't realize what they're saying is like horribly offensive like they don't realize the impact of either their words or maybe policies they endorse like it's and i call it racism light because it's just like it's it's still very much racism it's very much like systemic as well and sometimes i think sometimes these people are are well-intentioned people too i feel like sometimes in in that instance we do have the opportunity to maybe speak up a little bit more maybe not necessarily be drivers of change i always feel like the people of color are going to be drivers of change i would love to feel like i could be one but i i i don't know that i could ever claim to be one you know until i until i really like make it a life goal um but i I, I get what you're saying um, because I feel I'm kind of around some of those people that they feel they're like, well, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm white. So I'm marginalized now. I feel like I don't matter as much anymore. I'm like, you've never mattered so much, you know, <laughs> like you've, you've, you've never been, a, you're at the height of your importance and now you have the opportunity to really do something about it. Something we could do together. But like, I don't know, that's kind of less specific and maybe more based out of the two glasses of wine and, glass of whiskey i've had i've had way more than that and also like the just like the 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 white people feeling the whole concept of white genocide and the idea that white people are like marginalized and somehow being thrust out of the, the cultural conversation is just so fucking funny to me because it's exactly the excuses that they used in 1888 and 1916 in 1936 and 37, when when fucking what's his face, Spirit of St. Louis dude, Charles Lindbergh, was like trotting up and doing his own fireside chats, talking about the preservation of the white race and how like we shouldn't involve ourselves in a European conflict because at the end of the day, we were really on the side of the hmm. white people. It just that doesn't go away. And this is where, like, I don't know, you know, Erica said some shit at the beginning of this podcast, which I thought was, like, relevant, controversial in a sense where, you know, I, I don't think guns has any, a lot of relevance to it. But <laughs> the thing that she said about, like, 
feeling that certain people are just against you. If you look back at American history, that doesn't go away. Like there has always been a strain of people who are at the drop of a hat, willing to embrace white supremacy and fascism as political as political means to an end. Whether that's in 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 eighteen sixty or in in you know in in the Reconstruction era with the red shirts. And or that's all the way up through Charles Lindbergh and the kind of enlightened scientific racism of his generation. There's just always going to be groups of people who think that other groups of people just simply don't belong. And the fact that like there's a couple of those in the White House right now means that that's not going anywhere. It's here to stay. Isn't that wild? It almost feels like we've all just been injected with a disease and it doesn't matter how much you want to remove Trump and that ideology from your life. It is now in every single person's life. Um, And you can't ignore the fact that it is a constant threat. It's just, it's just like kind of all consuming at some point. Yeah. It's funny, you know, um, I have to look up this guy's name. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, he wrote this thing about democracy in the 1800s. And a lot of people on the right, some of my family members included, like to talk about this book and, and you know, say like, oh, like we're in the waning days of democracy and we have to do something about it. I'll come back to that point. Um, one of my friends dated this guy who was very fatalistic in his worldview. In everything that he did, he would just kind of like reach a certain point, like there's just an inevitable conclusion to this, and I'm not even going to try to fix it. And that is why his relationship with my friend ended. You know, he always felt that she was above him and he was reaching to be at her level and he would never fix that. So he ended up cheating on her and it broke up the relationship. Like it was entirely within his power the entire time to not do the things that he did to end the relationship, but he always felt that the relationship was going to end. And I feel like people on the right and to some extent, just Americans in general feel these things about our our country that like, this is who we are and we can't change them. And this is just the inevitable course of the American experiment. And it's just going to end or it's going to have a conclusion. And I, I feel like, 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 no, we don't have to do that. We don't have to let this play out the way we want it to. You know, we see that with so many things like climate change. It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll accept that climate change is happening, but it's just inevitable that our economy is fossil fuel based. We can't do anything about it. I think you're right on. Like I I was having this feeling today, that exact feeling that you just described around um, you know, what What do Democrats do with like the COVID relief package? Because there's a bipartisan group of four Republicans and four Democrats that pose something that's not enough, but it's better than where Mitch McConnell is. And I, I thought about, I know about these stimulus packages. I know that there's 500 billion, 900 billion, 2 trillion, and then 3 trillion. And like, I know that all of these things have been sort of like, 
talked about and like shared and like they were, they've been debated upon, but like I'm somebody who is actively living and breathing politics every day, picking up the New York times every day and digesting it as much as I can. I'm listening to political podcasts constantly, but like for all these other people, they like like they have a level and, and uh, Trump supporters and, and, and Biden supporters, you know, Republicans, Democrats, like it's a lack of understanding of the details. And I don't fault them for that because it's like a cynicism of it is that it they don't know what it could be. They don't know who's actually fighting for what because it's fucking complicated. And 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 I know that one people don't have time. People are overworked working multiple jobs. Sometimes it feels like it's not something that they can even spend time on. 30% of people don't vote at all. So like, I know that there's like a level of, of just cynicism and disengagement and disillusionment that government even works for me in this country. And so when I think about like, how do I talk to these people? How do I help other people talk to these people? How do I post things about these people? It's like, what do I make simple? What do I make more complicated? How do I help people understand that there's so much that's not in our control? The police funding of a city outside of a city that you or I live is absolutely without side of our direct control. We could certainly protest. We could help other people protest. That part is within our control. But the actual decisions being made is very different. We can't run for office in those places unless we, you know, live there. But I just thought, like, how can we, especially with these Georgia runoffs, how can we speak to people in Georgia about the importance of voting in Georgia? We don't fucking know what it's like to live in Georgia. Charles maybe does a little bit more than we do. But, like, we don't know the things that are happening in Georgia. And for us to just kind of sit there and talk about Mitch McConnell and the stimulus package and this and that I don't know that that stuff works like I just don't know that that stuff works I think that the Democrats failed attempt at seizing the Senate is kind of indicative of that and so I just I I I am struggling to even figure out how we reach the kind of cynical the disillusioned the disengaged um and then also like I think we've been talking on this podcast is have tough conversations with the other people I think it's something that we all probably need to work on and can like do more podcast episodes about as we share some successes that we've had, or we've shared books that have been successful for us. Um, but that's like where I feel so stuck, you know, in all of this. Yeah, newsflash, Paul, uh, it doesn't work. You can't relate to the people in Peachtree City who are going to end up determining, you know, whether Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue are going to end up reelected. Um and fundamentally, they're going to base their decisions on this kind of winner-take-all idea about mm-hmm. the future of America. As a Democrat, I think we're going to get blown out in those two senatorial races. I, I think it's going to be a humiliating defeat. And I, I think that's because as much as we see this as a battle line for a quote-unquote progressive agenda going forward, for, for the Trump cultists, this is much more than that. This is a, a line in the sand. You know, this is the seventh cavalry at the Battle of Little Bighorn deciding what's going to be the end. And I think that we can expect after the defeat of Trump that right wing engagement and turnout in Georgia is going to be bigger than we anticipated. I don't think that we, I mean, uh, we can, we can be relieved that Georgia went for Biden. It's a miracle. It 
it's entirely thanks to Stacey Abrams in Atlanta, but it's not going to last. And I think Republicans are going to work extraordinarily hard to retain those seats in Georgia. Luckily, right now, they're telling people not to participate in the, in the runoff election because they're saying it's full of fraud. But I, I agree. I think the races are wildly difficult. I think we know how the electorate in Georgia votes. And I think that that's a good segue into our kind of final segment of just what are we going to do differently to prevent that from happening? What's the action items that we're going to take to prevent that from happening? Just a reminder of the dates for everybody. January 5th is the day of the actual runoffs and early voting begins on December 13th or 14th, I think. Like, we have to do everything that we can to get those seats. Right now, what I've heard from the people who work with Stacey Abrams and Better O'Rourke is that the local grassroots organizations need money. They don't need volunteers. There's enough people on the ground, but they don't have enough to kind of incentivize them to work. So my action item for the week is is we have to fucking donate to these grassroots groups. It's great that we have Fair Fight. Fair Fight is incredibly well-funded. We need these smaller groups that work in these niche communities that can speak to these voters in ways that anybody else cannot that anybody who listens to this podcast cannot like we're probably going to blow a ton of money they're going to be really hard races to win we definitely could be crushed you know like emotionally physically and by the vote count um but if there's any message that comes from this podcast of whether it's beating fascism fighting trump supporters fighting donald trump fighting republicans trying to move forward in terms of a progressive agenda we have to win Georgia. And that's really our only alternative. And if they need money right now, we have to give them money. Like, And that's a shame for so many people who can't do that right now. But it's all I know what to do. I think inundating these people with out-of-state callers, it's going to be really difficult to sell them. You know, when, when you don't sound like you're from there, who's going to trust you? I think it's giving them money or giving them your time. If you can volunteer, if you can give them services better than anything else, I hope and, and not pray because I don't pray, but you know, pray to whatever God you believe in, or just, you know, hope with everything that you can and give everything that you can to these races. Um, Cause that's really all we have left um, for at least two years. If not, then we really have to rely on what Biden said, which is, Lean on Republicans, trust Republicans, they'll cross the aisle, we can be bipartisan again. I don't believe that, but I know that that's what this administration is hopeful for, or at least that's what they kind of ran on, that they could inspire. So, Paul, I don't don't think they need money. I I really don't think they need money. I mean, the sheer amount of money that's going to be pumped into these two Senate races by the DNC and other, you know, PACs run by the Democratic Party is just going to be... Yeah, I'm not saying that the candidates need money. And I'm not saying that the big organizations need money. I'm talking about the small, tiny groups of, you know, people who organize niche communities in swing districts and swing areas. There's like 20 that I've shared on Instagram. Like the race is going to get a ton of attention, but if we don't empower grassroots organizers that represent that community, that's who I worry about. I don't think the can I don't think the candidates or any of the <laughs> any of the major packs need our money, and that is where I see a lot of people donating right now. That's kind of my take on on where the money should go. 
I, I agree in a sense. I just think that, yeah, like, I, I, you know, as, as a former Republican living in the South, I find that those sort of personal connections where you can talk to somebody about what their desires are mean more than, yeah, I mean, I mean, like, look at Jamie Harrison's campaign. It was one of the most well-funded campaigns in American history, and it, it fell flat. You know, he lost by, like, 11 points. At the end of the day, if you can't make a personal connection with, with the voters in these areas, and yeah, like it's perfectly valid to write off a large percentage of them as just crypto fascists. Like that's perfectly fine. You know, I'm weirdly in a place where I see that as like <laughs> a very valid way of looking at American politics. Is there's just going to be a fascist block that doesn't move. But there is a sliver of people there that I think if they were shown a personal quality could potentially change. And that's something I, I don't think donate, donating your money is, is necessarily going to do. I mean, the DNC is incredibly out of touch. The Georgian people need personal connections more than they need money being poured into their districts. I think. Yeah. I think I don't know what that means then, you know, like if we're, if we're not giving our money, if we're not giving our time, and they don't need more volunteers, do we just wait it out and see what happens? I can't do that. <laughs> no, I think you I think you like direct message and call a bunch of people who live in Georgia. Paul, you were kind of saying it is the funding would go to the they, they use it to entice volunteers, correct? Or people to work or yeah well they can pay they can pay the people who are now volunteering basically yeah, which i mean is great but um i guess it, what we've seen especially this year too that no matter how much money is raised from outside of the state doesn't mean it's going to make a difference so um but to your other point it's like what else is there to do but then maybe it is waiting it out if you don't live in georgia but it's easier said than done i don't know I'm scared. I'm like just scared that we could all get complacent. Like Paul, like come come to South Carolina and stay with me for a week and let's go drive to Georgia and talk to, to voters. Everyone on this podcast wants to do that, but our, our only concern is COVID. Well, I'm not going to give you COVID. I know you're not. Yeah. On the couch. <laughs> That's the only other alternative I have is like, I've been thinking about it like, okay, we have a month left. Is it time to move? temporarily can i put my job on hiatus for georgia i don't know or find a way to do it oh, on the weekend obviously if you're doing it charles i'm in so and kirk is in and andrew's in because basically let's be real i'm andrew's boss um and <laughs> but i guess back to it though the thought is like if and this is not how it works, obviously, because there's not a president on the ticket, so people won't come out, right? Like that's another thought behind it is you lose. I think you lose a lot of Democrats in those situations, right? And when it's the ticket is just for Senate or for something more local, because if you think about it, if you had every single person that came out again that voted in the the election, then we would, you know, a Democrat would win, the Democrat would win. Um, so I guess it's how do you make sure that those people are still engaged who voted in November? But again, that's easier said than done. But it's just frustrating to think like there are 13,000 more people that did vote. I know it's a very small number, but um, if you were able to get all those people out again, plus more, 
and 23,000 people who are going to turn 18 before the runoffs. It's like, like whatever we need to do, I'll fucking do it. As long as they aren't Andrew's sister. (laughs) I I also am. I don't know. I am one of those people that I'm okay with registering Republicans. Like I just, you know, I I just want more people to participate in general. I truly do. It's the only way anything works. I just, I I know that that a lot of people would hate me for saying that, but I just, I wish more people voted because it makes me sad. I know. I'm not saying I want to register Republicans. I'm just saying I'm happy to register anyone who wants to participate. And I know (laughs) Donald J. Trump uh, grabbed them by the pussy fame uh, received the second most votes of any candidate in American history. You know, so fundamentally what we have is not a problem of voter registration, but of Right. I think it's both. I, I, I believe it's both. Um, like, like for me, it's, it's always like, where does the party need to go? And I'm like, uh, register more progressives and convert more Republicans. We need both, you know, we need both of those things in order to be successful. Um, you know, like I, the Democratic party has completely turned its back on progressives. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, look at, look at Biden's cabinet pick. It's yeah. a disaster. For I know some people who would challenge you on that. That's another podcast though. um okay well let's close out action items andrew erica kirk charles one thing that you would say whether it be a book whether it be a cause to get involved in whether it be a person to follow what is your action item and who wants to start erica um my action item for the following week and i also will say um continuing throughout the year up until early January is to just, I was actually talking to a friend not too long ago and she was kind of saying, you know, all these people are saying I should donate here. I should donate there. And Andrew, you brought it up in our group chat a few days ago. Um, It's hard to tell what organizations are doing the right thing. Um, So I just kind of challenge you. And I think, Paul, you sent us a really good resource. My own Instagram. I completely (laughs) forgot the name of. (laughs) No, it was like an actual source. I hate Paul. Um, But, you know, do your research when it comes to donating. Kind of understand um, what you're donating to. And I personally try to keep the mindset of just because – it's going towards a certain cause doesn't mean that you necessarily believe in the organization. Um, For example, I know a lot of people donate to Red Cross. I personally have my own qualms with the Red Cross. So um, really be cognizant and aware of where you're donating because, um, you know, you have, that is the most say that you can have with the money that you're donating, right? Like, if I send my money to whatever organization, they get to choose what they do with it. But you ultimately get to choose what organizations that you're going to support. Um, and also recognize that support isn't always financial as well. Um, so whether it be uh, providing something for the people who are on the ground working or um, donating materials or just time, uh, there's so many ways to get involved and it's definitely worth it to not to just give up and say, I don't have the time or I don't have the money. I don't want to do it. Like you, 
there's always something that you can give that isn't of a huge cost to yourself. Agreed. Kirk, what's your action item as you stare into the abyss of your computer? I was trying to find one. Um, mine is a little bit different, which I, is, I guess is the point of this, right? Um, I, I think it's the holidays coming up. You know, COVID's still a thing. Not to be COVID preachy, but I feel like it's important to be a little COVID preachy. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm the best person ever in the world and haven't left my house in nine months. I certainly have. And Paul will be the judge of that. But, um, one of my, one of my action items that you can kind of, you can do it just to make yourself a little, feel more comfortable. And to, if you did go somewhere like Paul was mentioning earlier, how he went in an Uber where he most likely didn't get COVID, but you never know because the circumstance was weird to him. And it was being in his outside of his, his normalcy. Um, that there are some great at-home kit tests that you can order that you could have that um, I actually started using one called Pixel by LabCorp and it's covered by insurance. And you just swab yourself. It comes with a bunch and a bunch of tests and you in the box and then you send them out and it comes back in three, um, two to three days. And the results are, I mean, from what I've seen, it's, it's pretty accurate. It's more accurate, obviously, than a rapid. Um, so it's like a PCR test. So just doing stuff like that. If you are going to be seeing people or do you want to see your family or just a few people just being, um, you know, understanding the risks and, and, you know, understanding it's, I know it's hard to get tested. I've looked to go certain places to get tested. And sometimes it's like a week um, because everyone's trying right now. So that there are other options. So that's mine. And, or you could just stay home and wear a mask (laughs) in in your house alone while you watch real housewives (laughs) at home. In your house alone, and you could watch The Undoing, which I started watching. There's another action item on HBO with Nicole Kidman. It's very good. Uh, Andrew, what's your action item? So I'm going to go in even more of a different direction. We're all and striving to be different today. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> I had a conversation with my manager earlier today, and I think one thing that we should all do for ourselves, you know, we talk about our action items and what we should be doing and should we donate and should we text bank and should we do this? Should we do that? And there's a lot of pressure on all of us right now to do the things that we have to do for COVID and do the things that we have to do politically. Um, Give yourself a day or two off at some point in your life. Um, Especially since I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but my experience certainly has been that there are no more boundaries to work hours in my life. Um, And that bleeds over into every aspect of (laughs) my life, especially because that has happened to everyone else I've worked with. And I get emails literally at every single time of the day, including 3 a.m. And I wake up to a full inbox um, and it is incredibly taxing when you don't really realize it until it's too late. So take a day if you need it, just to do absolutely nothing related to anything we've talked about on this podcast or your job. If you can swing it, do it. I like that. Yeah, definitely necessary right now, too. Uh, Charles, what's your action item? Am I allowed to have three? (laughs) So extra. Jesus. You could have two. You know, you could have three. (laughs) Read Sarah Churchwell's Behold America. Watch Damon Lindelhoff's Watchmen on HBO. And number three, read Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh. I was like, that's the name of the book. It's really long, but it really 
Jack Kirk Hughes. And I got it. I have to say, that is a let's unpack that first. We have yeah. destroyed the Bible on this on this podcast. Oh, your mom might watch. I think this my one. mom would be thrilled. I think <laughs> I need to bring one. Charles home to meet my mother. <laughs> Listen, that's a um, that's a package you can buy on my website. Is, is bringing home conservative mama. <laughs> I said my my mother would be thrilled if I divorced my gay oh, British yeah. socialist radical left husband for a like pro gun straight, straight Democrat from the South. <laughs> now I'm reading the Bible, literally. Kirk, do your eyes hurt? No, honestly, I is should that, do this more. His asshole's you. bleeding. Kirk, you're catching on fire. <laughs> this is literally, literally, this is this is the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where all the Nazis melt. That's what's about to happen to us. <laughs> let, let me end the episode before we fully go on into religion. So, well, this has been another joyous episode of Let's Unpack That. Erica, Kirk, Andrew... It was sort of nice to have you. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. We would, of course, love to have you back. Um, This was an absolute blast. Thank you all so much for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. Thanks so much.